Hello, and welcome once again to another episode of the TriDoc Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sankoff, the TriDoc, an emergency physician, triathlon coach, and multiple Ironman finisher, coming to you from beautiful, sunny Denver, Colorado. Lots of exciting things going on in the world of triathlon of late. A couple of weeks ago, we had the very much fabricated and yet still entirely enjoyable tri-battle. That was, of course, between Lionel Sanders and Jan Frodeno and took place in Germany. I think the only thing that surprised me about how all that whole thing went down was that despite it being Lionel's idea and he being the one who really got the thing going in the first place, it rapidly devolved into the Jan show with Lionel playing a very small supporting role. Still, I don't think anyone can argue that it was a good day for the sport. Then this past weekend, we had all of the Ironman Lake Placid and the women's and men's races at the Olympics. All of those races were exciting, and it's a reminder to me personally of just how out of touch I am with the ITU circuit, as I can unashamedly say that I didn't know any of the podium finishers in the men and only knew Flora Duffy on the women's side before the whole race began. Like everyone else, I love the commentary by one Instagram user on the race. Less Dog with three Gs pretty much summed up the feeling of many of my friends and family when I try to explain what it is that I train for, when he said, quote, to me, I think it's pretty selfish to be that athletic, end quote. And I'll admit he said it a lot more colorfully than I just did. But one news item that really caught my eye came out of upstate New York, where the town of Lake Placid and supporting communities decided to renew their contract with Ironman to host Ironman Lake Placid again next year, with the future after that being very much in doubt. I read the article from a local paper online, and basically the animosity between residents and the race boils down to the one day a year that they are impacted by the road use for the bike course. I find this to be such an incredibly and typically short-sighted lens through which to view this event that I was pretty much left speechless after after reading it. The article detailed in some vagueness, to be sure, the enormous economic benefits that the Ironman has brought to the area for the past two decades. Business owners are, of course, full-throated in their support for the race. But the ornery, glass-half-empty types who feel that the one day of the year when they are somehow imprisoned on their properties and unable to get into their car to head for the Sam's Club are somehow controlling the narrative here. And I think, personally, that's really sad. When I consider what I saw at races in Europe, where entire communities would willingly shut their roads down, not to share them with the race either, no, they'd shut main roads down and give them over to the cyclists. And then I consider the endless moaning and complaining about cyclists and triathletes that happens in North America, and I get really frustrated. Penticton lost their race a few years ago. Now, mostly, that was related to a contract dispute, and not because of any animosity from the community. But boy, did they regret that decision. And they spent years trying to rectify it, something that finally happened last year. I suspect that if Lake Placid decides that, you know, one day a year is simply too great to sacrifice for locals to consider in order to reap the rewards of the race being in their town, other locations like small towns like Penticton or other towns in the area of Lake Placid will be more than happy to step up. And I, for one, will gladly bring my hard-earned cash dollars there to thank them for their support and for that decision. On the show today, I'm going to start on a series of medical questions related to injury and treatments that are maybe not always thought of as standard. As anyone who has experienced an injury knows, the worst possible thing to hear is that all you need to do is rest and give it time. As athletes, we want to be able to do something right now that's going to give us immediate results and get us back to doing what we love. This impatience, unfortunately, is being exploited by all manner of people. 
from manufacturers to care providers and hucksters alike, and it's led to an explosion of alternative or experimental therapies that you'll often hear about as being worth a try when nothing else has worked, even if this particular thing is no more likely to work. Now, this is particularly true for chronic conditions, where traditional therapies often tend to be less beneficial. Well, for today's episode, I'm going to look at the merits of steroid injections to treat acute, subacute, and chronic injuries. And going forward, I'm going to look at things like PRP, laser treatments, and more. But the discussion of steroids is coming up in just a little bit. Later on, I'm excited to bring you a conversation that I had with recently retired professional triathlete and the owner of Rooster Sports, the maker of diamond bikes and red crown cycling wheels, TJ Tollickson. TJ welcomed me to the Diamond Factory pilot team earlier this year, and I've been really excited about the Diamond mogul that I've been riding for the last couple of months. Well, TJ talks to me about the history of Diamond, his time in the sport, and other good stuff related to the benefits of riding a beam bike, and that can be heard a little bit later in the show. Right now, I want to take a moment to welcome my newest Patreon subscriber, Scott Sarin of Chicago, Illinois. Scott signed up last month in order to gain access to all of the great bonus content that is available right now on my Patreon site, including interviews with Dave Scott, Simon and Leslie Patterson, Paul Larson, and many more. For the price of about a cup of coffee per month, you too can sign on to be a subscriber at my Patreon website, patreon.com forward slash Podcast, And that URL again is patreon.com forward slash Podcast. And thanks so much in advance, even for considering. Triathletes and injuries are well acquainted with one another, and I, as a coach, but especially as a physician, will frequently be brought into these unfortunate relationships by those, the athletes, looking for ways to rid themselves of their cumbersome bedfellows, the injuries, as soon as possible. Now, injury is an all-encompassing term and can mean a lot of different things. In some cases, it can refer to an acute problem that arises from something like, say, a traumatic process. Think of a bruise or a broken bone sustained on a bike crash. In others, it can mean more of an ongoing process that's related to overuse, and we see this in the form of inflammation of the shin bone seen in shin splints or the pain associated with running downhill experienced by those who have issues related to their iliotibial band. Lastly, injury can be a result of a disease process. Think of osteoarthritis. That's a great example of a chronic medical disease that, left unchecked, can result in increasing pain and suffering amongst those who wish to partake in endurance sport. Now, for many sufferers of of injuries, the remedy will often be straightforward, and this is most often the case for acute injuries. So if you take, again, the example of a fracture sustained in a bike crash or another kind of fall, the treatment is pretty mainstay. Cast the bone, give it time to heal, and this is well accepted as the means of treatment. And while athletes are never happy to be forced into taking this time off, the pain and the inability to use the affected body part kind of makes it a moot point. Now, for more chronic injuries, and those related to underlying medical illness, treatments are often not quite so obvious or uniform. And as a result, there's often desperation on the part of the athlete who wants only to have belief, who wants only to have relief so that they can pursue the activities that they love. Unfortunately, this has fueled a veritable industry of snake oil procurers, salespeople, and quasi-practitioners who will promise miraculous results to anyone who just uses their product or technique. And this vacuum is enhanced by the fact that many of the traditional remedies that we have for these kinds of chronic illnesses or injuries 
just simply aren't that beneficial. Well, the reality, of course, is that in almost all cases, these various potions, ointments, injections, or other kinds of treatments don't offer anywhere near the benefits that are promised. But when desperation is at play on the part of the athlete, reason is often rapidly dispensed with. Well, over the coming weeks and months, I'm going to take a look at some of the things that have been promoted to athletes as cures for what ails them. Some have actual science behind them that shows that there is some benefit or in many cases, clearly demonstrates that the claims being made about them are actually outright false. In other cases, there's no science whatsoever, and what is being promoted is, quite frankly, quackery. Now, at the end of the day, an athlete in pain is a desperate athlete, and while it's completely understandable that those athletes are going to want to try almost anything to address their issue in order to return to sport, if doing so is really nothing more than a waste of time and money, They should know that, and if they still choose to go ahead and try it anyways, then at least they're doing so with their eyes open. Now, one of the oldest remedies that athletes with chronic and, in some cases, acute injuries have sought out is the injection of steroids into an injured body part, and this is most frequently into an injured joint. Steroid injections have been used for decades by professional athletes and, more recently, by amateurs as well. And there's a general sort of belief that if you have a swollen joint or tendon, or if you have a diagnosis that ends with the term itis, I-T-I-S, which is Latin for inflammation, really there's no better way to say it, it, it will be best treated with a shot of steroids. So what does the science say about this, and how do steroids work to treat inflammatory injuries? Well, the response to injury at a local level is actually quite predictable. After tissue and cells are disrupted, a cascade of chemical signals occurs right there that that is initiated by those damaged cells. And this initiates the migration of white blood cells into the area that begin a process of cleanup and repair. In most cases, this is a pretty smooth and orderly process. And after a few days to a week, everything's back to normal and the cleanup crew moves on, leaving normal tissue behind. A good example of this kind of process is with a sprain. When you sprain a joint, what you're actually doing is causing a small tear in a ligament, and that's the fibrous structure that affixes two bones in one joint to one another and keeps them from moving apart. When you get the sprain, there's a sudden sensation of pain, and this pain is there basically just to limit further use of that joint to prevent further damage. And this happens and suddenly there is the call for help by these, these, these chemical mediators that then go out, and swelling ensues as fluid and inflammatory cells move into the area. Over time, within that swelling, damaged tissue is being removed, new tissue is being laid down, and healing occurs and in about two weeks' time. Everything's resolved, good as new, and you're ready to go. Now, in other cases, things don't work out this well. Consider the case of osteoarthritis, a disease I mentioned earlier. In this case, there's inflammation within the joint as well because of micro-damage that's happening to the cartilage on an ongoing basis. And here, the inflammatory process begins but where the damaged cartilage is removed, but the new cartilage is not being laid down. And so the healing process actually becomes part of the disease. And over time, damaged cartilage is removed until you eventually have no cartilage left, and it's just bone on bone. Now, in other diseases or injuries, inflammation is going on, but is not actually part of the problem. Tendinitis is one such example. Tendinitis arises from microtrauma within a tendon, and while there are inflammatory cells in the area, inflammation is not actually a part of the chronic process that leads to tendinopathy. 
Still, knowing the role that inflammation plays in injury and the symptoms of pain associated with it, researchers and doctors have long sought to find a means to decrease inflammation in order to relieve the symptoms associated with injury. One of the first medications of this type was discovered in the bark of the willow tree. Salicylic acid, more commonly known as aspirin, has profound anti-inflammatory properties and has led to the discovery of many other drugs that can do the same thing. The use of non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, or NSAIDs, really forms the cornerstone of management of pain control in minor injury for exactly this reason. Now, in the 1940s and 50s, scientists made another discovery of a different class of drugs that would have profound effect on medical treatment of a host of diseases. Cortisol was the first corticosteroid to be chemically synthesized and was used initially to treat patients with Addison's disease, a condition in which the adrenal glands don't produce the vital hormone cortisol that is needed for life to be sustained. Now, over time, physicians came to understand that other important characteristics of this agent included a powerful anti-inflammatory property that was several thousand times that of the non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. Now, at this point, I think it's important to distinguish when we talk about steroids, we're talking about different classes of steroids. The steroids that I'm discussing in this segment are glucocorticoids, like cortisol, cortisone, prednisone, and the like. And they all have similar properties, the most relevant of which is their anti-inflammatory effect. Another class of steroids that all athletes are going to be familiar with are the anabolic steroids. These are mostly synthesized in laboratories and have names like stenalzolol or nandrolone. And these drugs, unlike the glucocorticoids, they don't have any effect on inflammation. But their main effects are to enhance muscle mass, strength, and speed. And the third class of steroids are the sex hormones and include testosterone and estrogen and confer secondary sex characteristics, though we know that testosterone also has anabolic effects. At any rate, corticosteroids, the drugs that I'm talking about in this segment, don't have anabolic effects. And the reason that they are used by athletes is really just for their anti-inflammatory effects only. Now, many studies have been done over several decades of experience now on whether or not steroids are helpful in treating all manner of ailments in athletes, and the results, unfortunately, aren't really all that encouraging. We do know that steroids are frequently used in injured athletes. A study in the Netherlands of patients with injuries of the neck, back, or shoulder found that as many as one in five received a steroid injection at some point. And this was despite the fact that a lot of studies have shown that such injections really don't help. Other studies have shown similarly negative findings with respect to the treatment of osteoarthritis of the knee and only marginal benefits for the treatment of plantar fasciitis. There is one indication in which steroids have been shown to have some benefit, and that's an acute injury of the knee, where an injection of steroids can diminish inflammation and pain. However, this injection does nothing to help heal the injury. All it really does is take away the important protective mechanism that pain confers and allows the recipient of the steroid to then go on and use the joint as they would if it wasn't injured, and this, of course, can result in more harm. When athletes injure their knee usually with some damage to the meniscus, cartilage, which is the lining of the bones, as I mentioned earlier, the result is an influx of swelling and inflammation with associated pain. So to return to activity before healing has occurred, athletes will often seek out a steroid injection to decrease that inflammation and pain, allow them to recover their function, even though it's only brief. But in doing this, as I mentioned, they're not fixing the joint. They're just unmasking or they're, they're masking the pain and they're masking the injury, going back to what they were doing before and very likely causing further damage. And a study of ex-professional soccer players from the United Kingdom demonstrates exactly that. 
Among players who had sustained some kind of knee injury during their career, and the numbers are really absurdly high, almost half reported receiving a steroid injection, and more than two-thirds had chronic knee pain long after their careers were, careers were over. Now, some of that is likely just from the original knee injury itself, but there's no doubt the steroid injections allowing these athletes to continue to play and practice on an injured knee can't have helped. Now, special consideration for steroid injections is tendinopathy. I mentioned earlier that chronic injuries of the tendon lead to structural damage in the, uh, structural changes in the tissue that can predispose to chronic pain, weakness, and even rupture. And the process of disease in the formation of tendinopathy is not really greatly understood, but we do know that it's not through an inflammation mechanism. And yet, studies have shown some benefits to the pain specifically if steroids are used for this indication. However, we also know that when you use steroid injections for tendinopathy, you dramatically increase the likelihood of tendon rupture. So you've got to be really careful if you're, using ten- if you're using steroid injections for this purpose. Now, there are myriad other uses for steroid injections, and this segment is not really meant to be a comprehensive review of all of the evidence for each of those indications. Instead, I've selected just a representative sample of those problems that are the most commonly encountered ones by athletes. And in the end, the decision of whether or not to pursue a steroid injection is one that you really shouldn't be taken lightly. And it should be done in conjunction with a health professional who has a lot of experience managing the injury in question. For the most part, I think I could say the research has been pretty clear, and that is that steroid injections are generally of no benefit with respect to shoulder and knee injuries. In some cases, may provide some transient symptom relief, such as in plantar fascia, fasciitis, or in some tendinopathies, and in many cases, can lead to long-term sequelae that you really need to be careful about if you use these indiscriminately, and this is specifically relevant for using steroids for tendinopathy or for acute injuries of the knee. Now, in the next episode, I'm going to review the evidence behind the use of platelet-rich, platelet-rich plasma injections, or PRP. But until then, if you have a comment or feedback on anything discussed in this segment, or if you have a question for something that you'd like me to consider answering on a future show, send it to me at tri underscore doc at icloud.com. If you are a regular listener of this podcast, then you know that the TriDoc is well-versed in the science of endurance sport. If you are looking for a coach who will bring that kind of insight to coaching, someone who brings more than 20 years of experience in racing and the knowledge that comes with years of coaching and both USAT and Ironman U coaching certifications, then maybe the TriDoc is someone you should consider for your coach to help you take your training in racing to the next level. As a member of the staff at LifeSport Coaching, Jeff Sankoff can get you access to team workouts and camps as well as discounts on clothing, nutrition products, and even bikes. So if you are thinking about a triathlon coach to help you achieve your performance goals, visit tridoccoaching.com or lifesportcoaching.com to see how the TriDoc can help you get to where you want to be in triathlon. Those websites again, tridoccoaching.com or lifesportcoaching.com. My guest today is triathlete and entrepreneur TJ Tollickson. TJ is an ITU Olympic Distance Age Group World's Bronze Medalist, overall champion at USAT Age Group Nationals for the Olympic Distance, and professional Ironman and Ironman 70.3 champion, with the best finish of 20th at the Ironman World Championships in Kailua, Kona. He's also an engineer and the founder and owner of Rooster Sports, Diamond Bikes, and Red Crown Cycling. 
TJ is married to Ashley, who is a family law attorney in West Des Moines. And uh, Ashley, by the way, is an accomplished athlete in her own right, having competed in the 2012 Marathon Olympic Trials. They have three children, son Theo and daughters Drew and Frankie, along with the Chinese Sharpay Murphy. But I have been able to tease him away from all of that in order to join me for a uh, brief amount of time today to talk all things Diamond, as well as uh, TJ's storied uh, career in the sport. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today, TJ. Yeah, thanks, Jeff. I'm excited to be here. Now, full disclosure, um, I've been a fan of Diamond Bikes for a long time. I have not owned one previously, but uh, this year I applied to be a member of the Diamond uh, factory, uh, factory pilot team. See, I don't even know the name of it. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> the diamond factory pilot team and, uh, was, uh, very honored to have been accepted. And so I'm actually awaiting a delivery of my first ever diamond bike. So I want everybody to know upfront that, uh, I am a customer as well as a team member of, uh, the diamond team. Uh, but TJ is here, not because I promised to have him on the podcast if I was accepted, but rather because I would view that as very much a, uh, benefit for me me if uh, he would come on. Uh, so TJ, tell us, what's the story of Diamond Bikes? I think people have seen the bikes. People are familiar with how they are probably one of the most awesome looking bikes that they're going to see at a triathlon. But how did they come to be? And how did you come to, you know, first ride them and then decide that it was something you wanted to, to form a company around? Sure. So at the end of 2009, I ended a long-term sponsorship deal uh, with the company with the big S logo. And, uh, the following year I struggled to find the right relationship of a partner that I could be involved with the R and D right aerodynamic performance, right. Monetary compensation. And so at the end of 2010, my wife, who at the time was my fiance told me, why don't you forget about the money? Uh, the contract, everything else, and just go out and buy whatever bike you think is going to help you perform the best and give you the best results. And at the time I was on the zip test rider team, uh, doing all the prototype testing for the years through the Firecrest, uh, the carbon clincher lineup. So testing their disc, uh, their carbon clincher disc, their Firecrest line of wheels. And I was on that test rider team with Jordan Rapp and David Thompson, who's also uh, an engineer and a former professional triathlete. And we were privy to some wind tunnel data that they did in that time period. So the standard bike zip was testing was a Cervelo P3 carbon. And just for fun, one time, they tested a Zip 2001 frame. And surprisingly, that Zip 2001 frame built in the 90s was faster than the Cervelo P3 Carbon at every yaw angle except for zero. Uh, and I got these test results and I was like, wow, man, this bike is crazy fast. If I'm going to buy a bike. That's it. So hey, I can I interrupt wife, for, I want to interrupt yeah, for just right. a second because I think people get confused with yaw angles. So what yes. you're saying is that the zip frame was fastest unless the wind was coming directly at the frame. So if the, if Correct. the frame was facing into the wind, then the uh, Cervelo tended to be the fastest, but in real life Correct. situations, zero angle yaw is never what you actually experience. You always have wind coming from something other than zero. So a frame that is faster at everything but zero is going to be in real life a faster frame. 
Typically, that's correct. Yes. Okay. You also right. have to remember that the faster you ride, the more you approach zero yaw, regardless of where the wind direction is actually coming from. Right. So, um, yes, you're almost always seeing some degree of yaw. It's difficult to measure at any time. Bestbikesplit.com. I'm going to throw my plug in for this right here because it's one of the coolest math geek tools out there. Does a great job. They will show you the yaw angles of every ride you do. You can plug in your GPS data and real time weather, and it will show you the yaw angle while you were riding. Um, really cool stuff. So I use them a lot for just kind of uh, jerry rigged aerodynamic testing, but uh, it's 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 cool. It's effective. So yeah, that's that's yaw angle. Yeah, I, I love that uh, website as well, and am a subscriber because I use it to help with uh, race planning. So uh, I cut you off at the point that you were just talking about how you uh, had chosen that frame because of its, uh, or you know, Ashley had convinced you that it might be a good way to go. Yes. Uh, Ashley was not convinced. She told me I should buy a frame. I told her I wanted to buy a 15 year old bike frame. She thought I was nuts. Um, she's like, you really think that's fastest? And she said, well, if you think it's fastest, do it. So David Morse, uh, who was a friend of mine was working at zip, uh, actually showed up at my wedding, uh, January 15th, uh, 2011, with this frame that I purchased from a, from an employee at zip, I paid $1,200 for that bike. We had to do some modifications to make it work, but I raced it that year, 2011, the same year I got married. And the first race I was, uh, at St. George, I was third at that Ironman later that year. I won Eagle man on the bike. And then I won Ironman Lake Placid, my first Ironman win on a zip on a 15 year old zip 2001 frame. And I knew this bike was crazy, crazy fast and I wanted to ride it. And so I begged Zip to start making this bike again. They told me their number one customers were frame manufacturers. They weren't interested in playing in that sandbox again, but that if I was interested that they would help me revive the, the Zip 2001 design. And we originally talked about me buying the molds from Zip uh, and remaking the bikes. They were fiberglass molds. They were going to need too much modification. It wasn't worth it. So I, I met some guys, two zip employees, David Morse, uh, and Carl Hall in Boulder, Colorado at EBS carbon. So Eric Strauss owned this carbon company. That's actually where I met David Morse before he worked for zip. And, uh, we had a hackathon weekend and made a prototype diamond. And the following year, 2012, I raced that prototype diamond at the Ironman uh, New York City race in August of 2012. And it was questionable whether I should have been riding that bike because our manufacturing methods and processes weren't so great. But I was so ready to ride my own bike that I just I did it. And I rode that prototype. Fast forward to the next year, David Morse left his job at Zip to come work with me. We changed our bag manufacturing warehouse into a carbon manufacturing facility. And uh, November of 2013, we went to Ironman Arizona with the diamond prototype, tested it at the faster wind tunnel. It was the first bike that had ever been in that wind tunnel that was faster than the Cervelo P56. 
which is still the fastest wind tunnel tested bike Cervelo's ever manufactured. Uh, and the guys at the faster wind tunnel were just floored. They were like, I can't believe you did this. Like, this is absolutely amazing. Um, we had an athlete at that race, Ironman Arizona, jumped on the bike for the very first time, raced it at Ironman Arizona and qualified for Kona in his age group. That athlete is Scott Chaney, is Scott Chaney. Um, he still rides a diamond to this day. And uh, the very next year, the next spring, by March of 2014, we were shipping diamond bikes made in our carbon fiber manufacturing facility in Des Moines, Iowa, to customers all over the world. And where did you come up with the name Diamond? Yeah, so Diamond uh, is an interesting take on this. So, you know, a, a traditional bicycle is called a double diamond uh, geometry frame, right? And so it has a front triangle and a back triangle, and they call that a double diamond. So a beam bike is then referred to as a single diamond frame. So it has no back triangle on it, uh, and it's just one open diamond. But the part of the frame that is missing in frame building school, I went to frame building school in Portland, Oregon, is oftentimes referred to as the A-frame of the bike. And so we have diamond spelled without A, so a single diamond frame spelled without the A to make diamond bikes. I love it. See, I didn't know that. That's 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 yeah. fantastic. And now I can, I can tell that story. That's terrific. Right. Um, now... Uh, you know, I said earlier, uh, I, I am awaiting my diamond. I'm very excited about it. Uh, there are many myths out there about beam bikes, and I'd love to go through just a couple of them because TJ did uh, a series of really entertaining YouTube videos not long ago. Uh, I urge you to go find them. Uh, you can just, uh, uh, they're under the, I think they're under your Rooster Sports channel. Is that correct? Uh I, no, it should be under Diamond Bikes. Yeah. Okay. So uh, look, look for look for YouTube's. I'll put the link in the show notes for the the YouTube channel where you can find TJ's uh, videos. But he did a great a series of videos on the history of beam bikes, in which he talked about some of the myths that persist about beam bikes. And I want to just touch on a couple of them here. And the first is, I think a lot of people think of beam bikes. They think of the soft ride, which was so named because the the beam of the soft ride was attached to the rest of the frame, almost with a a spring. Or, or, or some kind of you know contraption that allowed that bike to soak up a lot of the road uh, you know vibrations and made the bike very popular amongst people with like back issues and things like that. Uh, but everybody to this day still thinks that beam bikes are you know have a spongy, very flexible beam. Uh, what's the truth uh, nowadays when we think about beam bikes? Yeah, so all the beam bikes that are manufactured today, whether it's a diamond or a Cervelo or a Sipo. They're all rigid. Uh, they're, they're rigid beams. And because it's a cantilever design, uh, it does have some movement. It has some travel, but it's a couple millimeters of travel, not, uh, not a couple centimeters of travel. Right. And so, uh, we're, we're talking about a little bit of shock absorption, but when you get on a diamond, you wouldn't know you were on a beam bike. Uh, it feels like a regular bike. It's sturdy. It's stable. It's stiff. Uh, transfers power well. The biggest thing that you're going to know you're on a diamond is, especially when you ride that at speed down a big hill, uh, you're going to feel the aerodynamics and then you're going to be like, wow, uh, that's not a regular bike. Um, the second part of that is you talked about the back issues and, and all that. 
because it has a couple millimeters of travel, it is actually wonderful for anybody who has back pain. Uh, but it's also wonderful for just running off the bike because it has a tiny bit of shock absorption. So any high frequency road vibrations. So think about riding down in uh, Buffalo Springs on the chip seal down in Lubbock, Texas. That little chatter really gets numbed uh, by the beam, and so that that has a has a big effect, especially spending two to six hours on your bike during a race, and uh, it's 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 noticeable when you run off run off a diamond for the first time. That's really interesting to me, TJ, because uh, I, I I had really thought that nowadays the beam bikes were all super stiff, and and you didn't get that kind of. Um, uh, dampening of, of road chatter. And I think that's great. I look forward to trying that out because we have tons of <laughs> chip seal here too, as well. Uh, but the main advantage then of the beam, because in the old days, the, st- the soft ride advantage was taken to be comfort because of that give in the beam. That's no longer the case. Now the main advantage of the beam bike is purely aerodynamics, correct? Correct. Correct. It's, it's taking out a large portion on the backside of the bike. And so, uh, having and then that's why it excels very very well at yaw right so anytime you're in a crosswind you have very few frame members being parts of the bike that are made out of carbon that are interfering with the aerodynamics and so especially when you ride a beam bike with a full disc wheel on the back the aerodynamics are unbelievably superior and that's one myth that uh i i wouldn't mind talking about either is a lot of people think that uh Beam bikes do really well in the wind tunnel when there's no rider, but once you put a rider on, the aerodynamics disappear. Um, so that's another myth that I'd like to tackle here and talk about how we looked at this and, and deciphered what was going on. So it is true. So when you're in a wind tunnel, uh, it's very much like being on a trainer. So they make a front fork stand uh, that you mount your bike to and then a rear uh, stand. So it fixes both axles in place. Now, the problem when you fix the axle on a beam bike, especially our bike, because the beam is removable for travel, that beam will move side to side when the bike stays in place. And so when you're riding the bike in the wind tunnel, the rider is actually moving side to side several millimeters, thus changing the uh, frontal area of the aerodynamics. And so to compensate for this, we actually took a bike uh, filled the frame with concrete, uh, to make it so that it would not, uh, sway side to side. And this was our method of compensating for the axles being clamped while we're in the wind tunnel. Um, but I'm also still just a big fan of pure bike only testing in the wind tunnel. And my reason for that is I've, I've done out of every professional triathlete ever, um, Lance Armstrong would be the only one who spent more personal time in a wind tunnel than I have. And that's not just testing. I'm talking about me riding in a wind tunnel, um, hundreds and hundreds of hours of paid wind tunnel time to do all this testing. And it's very, very difficult to replicate the exact same position, even on the same bike. Uh, run after run after run. And we have some great techniques to do it, uh, but it's very difficult. And a few millimeters difference in CDA 
drastically affects the results that you're looking at. And so trying to control that as best as possible is the, is, is the right solution. And so I'm a big fan of bike only testing. Not that we don't do rider on testing. I just talked about it. I just take those results less seriously than, than the bike only. Have you looked at doing some of the track, uh, like some of the velo testing that's been looked at for, uh, CDA calculations? Yeah. So we've done some of that actually. Um, it's, it's very, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's very good and it shows in real world, the, the benefits of it. Uh, but it's still, even that becomes very dependent on, on the position, less the actual frame. Right. So, um, when, People talk about rider on testing. It really isn't about a manufacturer's equipment, this being better than that. It really is how well does the equipment fit a rider? And then the entire integrated machine, the rider and the bike is what's being tested. And so um, that testing is great. And it's really good if if you're trying to perform. Uh, improve your um, fit and aerodynamics. But if you're just looking at, hey, if I change this design on the bike, does it make it faster and slower? The wind tunnel is the place where you want to make that decision. Okay. Uh, a couple other myths I want to touch on. Uh, one of them is a common misconception that beam bikes are heavy. That seems to be the case for the, the P5X. But uh, my understanding is the diamond does not follow in that. I mean, it is slightly heavier. It has to be because of its, our, its engineering. But uh, when people say beam bikes are heavy, what's the reply? Yeah, no, they're not. Um, our bike is certainly not on the heavy side of that. It, uh, we had, we have the lightest beam bike that's, that's made now. I should say probably the lightest beam bike that's ever been made. Uh, I don't have the data to prove that, but I have so many beam bikes from different manufacturers that I've ridden and tested that I can say that of all the beam bikes that I've ridden and tested, ours is definitely the lightest. Um, but it doesn't, it doesn't have to be heavy. And if you look at our bike compared to the other industry standards, there's actually a triathlete mag uh, buyer's guide issue that has uh, our carbon auto, which is our low end bike, aluminum wheels uh, in our largest size, uh, size uh, five. And it's lighter than most of the other super bikes uh, that were in the review. And so that bike was under 20 pounds. Um, but yeah, Chris Foster traffic magazine wrote the, uh, wrote the article and he, he personally weighed all the bikes. And so that's the other side of it that becomes confusing is you'll see a lot of weights thrown around. I know Canyon likes to publish weights on their website and, um, you know, the best, the best source for uh, weight of the bike has been Chris Foster Triathlete Magazine because he just takes the actual bike and weighs it and then publishes the number that's showing up. Uh, and so that's that's a fair assessment of, of what it weighs. And uh, as far as super bike performance goes, high-end aerodynamics, there are not many bikes that are lighter than the Diamond. Now, you touched on handling a little bit earlier. You mentioned it kind of uh, in a quick way. I want to return to that because that's something that I had been told by non-diamond riders. Uh, all the diamond riders vociferously refuted uh, anybody who would say this. But the you know non-beam bike riders suggest that beam bikes don't handle as well because it's missing all of that structural integrity in the back end. Um, what's the reality? The reality is, is it's how you engineer a bike, right? Uh, and so it's 
good engineering can can compensate for any lack of design that goes into uh or lack of frame members that are on the bike right and so the geometry of the bike is really the biggest thing that's going to affect how it handles and of course your fork and your fork rake are kind of at the top of that list um, one of the big advantages of a beam bike because it's missing that is it has a relatively lower center of gravity than a lot of other bikes do and so um, it will inherently feel more stable than many other bikes that you will ride. Um, it also, you know, the same time, you know, for the aerodynamic performance can have a lot less side force on the bike. Uh, so that's a big benefit. And then the increased side force that you do see on a diamond is all on the bottom half of the, of the bike instead of the top half of the bike, which then again, um, makes the bike handle quite a bit better. So handling of the bike, really, that's, that's all done with the design, you know, the stack and the reach and, um, all this was, was studied extensively by our entire design team that, uh, came up with how we should size and, and manufacture these bikes. And those are the biggest determinants into how well any bike handles. Now, you also mentioned earlier in our conversation, you mentioned the name Jordan Rapp. And most people are familiar with, you know, the story that uh, happened, I guess it's two, three years ago now, where Jordan uh, was previously sponsored by Diamond and for whatever reason, uh, decided to take uh, some grievance of his to Slow Twitch, where he... uh, made some allegations about, you know, frame integrity or safety of the diamond bikes. Uh, that story's been recanted. Uh, you guys have come to an amicable, amicable conclusion on that whole thing, but people still remember that story. Uh, you know, that, that came up several times when I was discussing uh, getting a diamond. People would mention, well, what about the Jordan Rap issues? Um, I, I felt quite confident having researched, researched everything about that, but I, I really, I think my listeners as well would be really interested in hearing your side of uh, at least what you, understanding you may not be able to disclose everything, but uh, what you might be able to tell us about that particular story and uh, what, you know, your feelings are in terms of what, you know, the reality is. Yeah. Well, I got to be a little bit careful because we did sign a, a legal agreement to resolve this, but um, I would just start out by saying that, you know, prior to this, I considered Jordan Rapp a good friend of mine, a competitor of mine. And that's probably part of this that, that hurts the most. But uh, what I can tell you are some facts um, of how this happened. So, 2016, November of 2016, I was on my way home from Ironman, Arizona. I'd just taken third place behind uh, Lionel Sanders and Brent McMahon. And I was in the United Club at the Denver airport. And Jordan called me and asked if I would let him out of his contract. Um, And he had a five-year contract. And um, he told me that it had nothing to do with the bike or anything else. It was for money, um, that he had a very large offer from another company. He then, you know, after I asked about it, told me what that company was. I told him I had some stipulations on how I wanted to handle, uh, the release of his contract, because I said, if I do release you, Jordan, I want to be able to control the information because I don't want this to be construed as, you are unhappy with the bike or there's something wrong with the bike or anything else. Um, and uh, that was agreed to. 
then it was breached. Uh, then I filed a lawsuit. Um, I shouldn't say I, I'm leaving out a bunch of important things that I really can't talk about, but I filed a lawsuit. Um, then, uh, after the lawsuit was filed, uh, I called, I call it the, uh, nuclear option. Uh, Jordan went to the nuclear option and he went to slow twitch and, um, told everybody that the bike was unsafe. And, um, after that, I, I really, I couldn't say, I couldn't say much of anything, um, because of further legal action that was taking place at the time. Right. So, um, we end up dissolving it and, uh, on Monday, June 5th of 2017, it was all over, but, uh, you know, the, the nuclear bomb had already been dropped. And I say this because people remember headlines, um, and it doesn't matter what it is. I mean, you could be, uh, a football player who was accused of raping somebody and you were out of the country when it happened. Uh, it doesn't matter in the public's eye. The headline uh, is oftentimes what, what you're found guilty of. Uh, and so that was unfortunate. I, I, you know, I've told you more than I've publicly told anybody. And uh, that's kind of the important part of this story uh, on how this went down. And the last part um, that June 7th, Slow Twitch did a did an article on on resolving our dispute. And I'd just like to read a little bit of that uh, because what's what's in there, I'm allowed to say over and over again. And I can highlight some parts of that. So uh Rooster Sports LLC and Jordan Rapp announced a settlement of the litigation between the parties. This was an internal disagreement between former partners and longtime friends that went too far in becoming public. Both parties regret making their dispute public through a lawsuit and public statements. Diamond bikes are and have always been safe, and Mr. Rapp agrees. Mr. Rapp believes he had a single tolerance issue with his diamond bike that was unrelated to safety. While Mr. Rapp was still under contract with Diamond, he entered into another sponsorship agreement with a competitor because it would believed it would be better for him financially. Mr. Tollickson and Mr. Rapp have amicably resolved this matter. That's probably the most important sentence that I could read about the whole thing. Um, and if what I told you prior to reading that statement doesn't add a huff, then uh, I apologize about that, but our bikes have been safe, were safe, have always been safe. Uh, I Later in the article, it talks about our testing standards. So we have in-house, we use to conf conform to both EPSC as well as uh, the ISO standard for road bike testing. Um, our bikes are allowed in ITU triathlon because they've been approved through ISO testing. Uh, we have very strict safety standards and they meet that. Um, but, uh, again, the, the damage was, was not in, not in the details. The damage was in, in the accusation. Yeah. Uh, and, and I mean, despite, I mean, never mind all the personal toll this clearly has taken, uh, you know, the business toll on the, of this had to have been enormous, uh, 
I wondered at the time, uh, you know, what this was going to do uh, for the business. I've been, you know, happy and relieved to see that you made it through that. Uh, clearly, that was not going to be an easy time for you guys. Uh, and you seem to have come back stronger than ever with uh, all new lines, gravel bikes, uh, new uh, tri bikes in the form of the Mogul. Uh, so clearly, uh, it's now in the past. And I, I don't want to belabor it any further, except to say that. Uh, I think that you've done a great job of summarizing it. And uh, yeah, I, I always viewed this as one person's animus for reasons that were unrelated to the bikes themselves. And, um, I, you know, I think it's unfortunate that it it came to where it did. And like you said, people unfortunately remember headlines. But, uh, you know, I think that uh, the proof's in the pudding. Uh, nobody else has ever had a problem. And, uh, right. uh, you know, this, is, this, this was a tempest in a teapot that got blown way out of proportion and i'm i'm glad it's in the past but i can i can't even imagine the emotional toll it had to have taken on you so i'm glad it's in the past we won't dwell on it any further yeah uh, in, yeah instead uh i do want to finish by just uh asking because uh i know that diamond and then there's rooster sports uh, which is the the cases the travel cases and now there's red crown cycling which makes wheels and makes uh front ends for uh um with, along with 51 speed shock components for uh, the diamond bike. So how are these three companies sort of uh, structured around each other? Or is there one company that's sort of over, you know, overarching umbrella? How does that all work? Yeah, so it is, it is really just one company. Uh, it is Rooster Sports, uh, spelled R-U-S-T-E-R, um, but pronounced rooster like the barn fowl. And we started with the bicycle travel case and the motto of that company was rise and shine. And that was really, you know, the motto is I'm a, I'm an early bird. I'm up every morning. I I'm training um, usually in the water at masters at five 30 in the morning. And if I'm not at masters, I'm uh, downstairs in the pain cave in the winter as well, early in the morning. And so I really believe in rising early and, and getting the best out of it. But it also means rise and shine as in, as in stand up and, and create something and, and make it shine. And so that's kind of the overarching principle of, of the company. And, you know, at the time we started Diamond as a brand within Rooster Sports. Uh, and we now have a DBA. So it's kind of run totally separate from what rooster sports is, but rooster sports is still the overarching, um, parent company. That's where we file the tax returns under. Uh, and then red crown cycling started, uh, I actually took a business class at, uh, Goldman Sachs called 10,000 small businesses, uh, or super cool program, totally free funded by an endowment at Goldman Sachs. And we had to use a, we came up with a growth plan and Red Crown Cycling was my growth plan um, from this business class. And uh, it's, it's our own internal wheel and component brand. And so if you think uh, Bontrager is Trek's in-house brand for wheels and bars and Roval is specialized, uh, Red Crown is the, the diamond. And uh, it's branded separately because the products work on any bike, just like Roval wheels work on a Trek bicycle or a giant bicycle or a diamond. Um, Red Crown wheels will work on any bike. And uh, we just... You know, we took our engineering prowess and and put it into other areas of uh, 
um, development to improve people's performance and uh, started our own line to, to complement the bikes. Well, it, it's a great story, a tremendous success. I think my favorite part about it is that it's really, I mean, as ground up as you can get. A triathlete finds a bike that he likes and then just goes crazy from there. Uh, yeah. it, you know, I interviewed Dan Enfield not long ago, and we had a conversation that seemed remarkably similar to this about how, you know, he he kind of came across, a, you know, the idea of the wetsuit. And so he just ran with it. And then he came across the idea of the tri bike and he just ran with it and, and encountered all kinds of success from doing that. And, and you're doing exactly the same thing. So I applaud you for your efforts and I'm, I'm very happy uh, with your success. And uh, it, I'm excited to now be a small, tiny little part of that. Uh, TJ Tollickson, uh, I can't thank you enough for taking some time and uh, speaking to uh, me about all of this. Uh, it's been a very uh, informative conversation and I'm looking forward to many more in uh, the months to come. All right. Well, thanks a lot, Jeff. I had a great time on the show. You've been an excellent host. And that's it for another episode. The TriDoc Podcast is produced and edited by me, Jeff Sankoff, along with my indomitable intern, Maddie Pesh. You can find the show notes for everything discussed on the show today, as well as archives of previous episodes at TriDocPodcast.com. Do you have questions about any of the issues discussed on this episode, or do you have a question that you'd like me to consider answering on a future episode? For that, or any commentary that you might have, I hope that you'll send me an email at tri underscore doc at icloud.com. If you're interested in coaching services, I hope that you'll visit try.coaching.com or livesportcoaching.com, where you can find a lot of information about me and the services that I provide. You can also follow me on the TriDoc Podcast Facebook page, TriDoc Coaching on Instagram, and the TriDoc Coaching YouTube channel, where this week there's new content, including my shoe review of the Nike Zoom AlphaFly Next Percent. If you enjoyed this podcast, I hope that you'll consider leaving me a rating and a review, as well as subscribe to the show wherever you download it. And of course, there's always the option of becoming a supporter of the podcast and getting access to lots of bonus content at my Patreon site, patreon.com forward slash Podcast. The music heard at the beginning and the end of the show is Radio by Empty Hours and is used with permission. This song and many others like it can be found at ReverbNation.com where I hope that you'll visit and give small independent bands a chance. The TriDoc Podcast will be back again soon with a medical segment on PRP and another interview with someone in the world of multisport. Until then, train hard, train healthy.